Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Dr. Dean Radin. Dean is the Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, IONS, an Associated Distinguished Professor of Integral and Transpersonal Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. After receiving his Master's in Electrical Engineering and a PhD in Psychology, he spent a decade working on research and development for advanced telecommunication systems. For the last 30 years, he has been researching the nature of consciousness and is the author or co-author of over 250 scientific and popular articles and three books, including the award-winning and best-selling The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds and Supernormal. His work has appeared on dozens of television shows and film documentaries worldwide, and he has been invited to present his findings to, organi- to organizations such as Google and the U.S. Navy. Dean, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. The strangest uh, synchronicity stories that I've ever personally heard is, is actually f- from you. Uh, it was the year 2000. You and a couple of colleagues were looking for some offices for your nonprofit that you just started up. Would you mm-hmm. mind sharing what happened next? Well, we uh, we were in Silicon Valley at the time, and I was in charge of a program of uh, psychic research for a technology company. Uh, so my contract had ended, and we decided to continue the research we had done by making a new nonprofit to study psychic effects using tools in, in primarily in physics and mathematics and that sort of thing, a technical version of psychic research. So we looked around all over Silicon Valley, and it happened to be around the time when dot-coms were kind of going crazy, so rentals were very high. So we had to go further and further out, and we ended up in a town called Los Altos. We found a nice place and uh, rented the offices, and I was the first one in, and I had to set up the furniture and all of the details of of the place. So for about a month, uh, I was focused on that. And then finally, I had at least my office set up. And I started looking around to see who were the other kinds of people in this office park that we were in. And I discovered, uh, to my surprise, that there was an an organization called PsyQuest, Inc. So it's P-S-I, just like Psy. Uh, but PsyQuest Inc. And I figured, well, that's a nice synchronicity or an amusing coincidence. And I figured, well, in that case, Psy must have meant something like Personnel Services Incorporated or something like that, because nobody was doing what we do. I mean, our our form of Psy, which, by the way, is is just a letter of the Greek alphabet. It's not capital P-S-I or anything like that. It's just it's a neutral term standing in for psychic. So we were pretty well aware of everybody in the world who's doing this kind of research. We were doing Psy research, but our name was just called Boundary Institute. It hadn't, you couldn't tell by our name what we were doing. So we had this funny coincidence, PsyQuest. And I looked to see if somebody, anybody was in the office and there was nobody there, so didn't know what to do with it. Uh, another couple of weeks go by. I walked to our office in a slightly different direction than I usually do. And to my shock, I find that right next to our office is something called PsyQuest Labs. And so now I'm more confused because we're next to a laboratory for something like personnel services. It, I didn't understand what that was, but there was, wasn't anybody in there. So 
I keep looking day after day now to see if there's anybody in the PsyQuest labs to find out what is it, who, who, are they do, who are they and what they're doing, and at least to introduce ourselves as their neighbors. We're right next door to them. Finally, I see that there's somebody in there, knock on the door, the door opens, and a man is standing there, and, and his mouth drops open, and his eyes bug out. And I thought he was having a heart attack or something because he didn't say anything. So I said, I, I offered my hand, and I said, uh, hello, I'm Dean Radin. I'm next your next door neighbor and he kind of croaked uh looking somewhat frightened and said dean raisin i said yes well to make a long story short the guy who is in psyquest labs is doing psy research exactly the same kind of research we're doing no one has ever heard of him before no one has ever heard of his outfit before he turned out to be an Apple employee who cashed out. He had done quite well at Apple, and he did what he always wanted to do, which was to do sci research. So he was so shocked when I showed up because he was in the process right then of attempting to manifest me, and he didn't know how to contact me because he wanted me to be on his board of directors to help him raise funds for his organization. Now, he was actually doing a Tibetan yoga practice, a, a dream yoga practice in which you spend three hours dreaming or sleeping and three hours waking all the time trying to sustain this intention of manifesting the thing that you want. And so I opened the door and he was shocked because he actually couldn't tell if he was sleeping or awake at the time. And I became shocked when he told me this because I think I have free will, but apparently not as free as I thought I did. Because <laughs> You know, I, I, I wasn't really, I didn't feel drawn to open the door at that moment. I had been looking to go into the place for, for quite a while. On the other hand, we made what we thought was a free will decision to put our institute at this particular spot, having no idea that, first of all, that we were right next to his laboratory, and second, that the laboratory was doing what we were doing. So the final part of the synchronicity is that I had been spending the past six weeks or so in my office, which was adjacent, adjacent walls to his office, writing on my, my white whiteboard and drawing a picture of the kinds of things that I wanted to have in our laboratory, including a certain kind of reclining chair and equipment and a shielded room and a bunch of other stuff. I've been planning to put that into our facility. So I told this to, to this guy, his name is John, and I said, well, you know, can I see what your facilities are? And he said, sure. So we went in and looked at it. And then my mouth dropped open because what he had in the room next, just on the other side of the wall where I was drawing was exactly the, the type of chair I was looking for and the equipment and the shielded room and everything. So he was pulling me into existence. And in a sense, I was pulling my equipment into existence right next to each other. So this is, I mean, classically, this would be called a synchronicity. It's a meaningful coincidence. Uh, but the series of really startling coincidences in a row begs the possibility that this is not simply a coincidence. It is something else going on. And, of course, we discussed it at great length, and the other people in the organization also were shocked. That, <laughs> what? How, how could this thing happen? Well, keep in mind that when we do an experiment in the laboratory, we're essentially creating a synchronicity on demand. Right? If we do a, an experiment on telepathy, we're hoping that there's a coincidence that the, this person and this person will think about the same thing. 
So it's a synchronicity, but it happened when we wanted it to. Spontaneous synchronicities are more shocking because typically it's it's something like a manifestation of intent or or you you need something to occur and it happens. So those are uncontrolled experiments. We do controlled experiments and we see the same thing happening in both cases. So I started doing this research about 30 or 30 years ago or 35 years ago already. And seeing these kinds of coincidences happen again and again, including on demand, convinced me that it was worthwhile spending a career doing this kind of research because it really does question our, our ordinary scientific assumptions of what we think reality is all about. It's an extraordinary story. So what, if, if, if this is, I guess my question is, what, 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 what do you think is stopping us then? What are the main things which are, are blocking these experiences maybe happening more regularly? Is it, is it the fact that we're maybe closed off to the concept and so that sh- shuts down the possibility? Do we, how, how, yeah, how, what, what, what are the main things stopping these experiences maybe happening more often? Well, my uh, my working theory is that when you look at the development of humans in an evolutionary sense, that ordinary waking consciousness is the worst possible state to be in to have these experiences. And that's because evolution has shaped us to pay very close attention to here and now. Okay. Uh, if, if there is a tiger about to jump on you, you have to be extremely sensitive to that sort of thing. But if the tiger is going to jump on you three weeks from now, you don't need to worry about it now. And by the same token, if something really horrific is happening 45 miles away, who cares? So you can see then that just from the survival of the species, we've, we've been shaped to be very good right here and right now and not pay attention to there and then. But everything psychic is all about there and then. So this shows how we our ordinary awareness kind of constrains what we're able to pay attention to. And... We notice that the moment that you're not in an ordinary state of awareness, dreaming, taking drugs, dancing, anything that pulls you out of ordinary awareness, including meditation, these kinds of of coincidences begin to mushroom quickly. A little play on the word mushroom. (laughs) So uh, my guess is that uh, certainly – Part of the issue here is that we're we're focused on not paying attention to these kinds of phenomena because most of the time they're not very useful. Some people, though, simply are naturally talented to be much more easily able to pay attention to this stuff. And so in a traditional sense, we'd call them the shaman. So it's very useful in a tribe to have somebody who can pay attention to where the, the hunt is going to be 20 miles tomorrow or if there's something that we need to know today but we can't see it. Those kinds of things. But it's relatively rare. I mean, you don't have an t- entire tribe full of shamans. The shamans typically can't take care of themselves too well because they're not paying attention to here and now. So we <laughs> need a broad range of talents. Some people need to be really good at very pragmatic stuff right now. And others in the society that can support those skills can be very good at paying attention to there and then. Unfortunately, the way that uh, that modern society has evolved, there isn't any room for a shaman anymore. I mean, some of the people I think who has the, the best talent in these domains end up in psychiatric wards because they, they're not well-grounded from the point of view of, of having a job and taking care of themselves and so on. 
but they may be really, really good at knowing what's about to happen two weeks from now. So we, we've, we've gotten away from a traditional way of being that takes advantage of a wide range of talents, including these kinds of talents. That said, I'm reasonably sure that everybody can have some aspect of these abilities because when we do laboratory studies, we don't go looking for shaman. We go looking for college sophomores because they're available. <laughs> when we, we compare the ability of unselected college sophomores who don't claim any special abilities versus people who do appear to have talent, <clears throat> then we find what you would expect. The people who have talent do better than the college sophomores, but the college sophomores can do something. Typically weak, takes a lot of repetition to be able to see the effects, but you do see the effects. So that tells me that we're not talking about, about a magical property, about X-Men that have, that have the ability and others don't. It's more likely that we're dealing with something like a a range of talent and the the ability to have these kinds of perceptions is simply a matter of sentience it's like anything that has any kind of consciousness at all is able to have these kinds of experiences uh, some people are simply a lot better at it than others so interesting what what happened when the psychologist uh Puekman, uh met the dalai lama what happened during that meeting so one of the traditional cities, the yogic powers that are said to result as uh, to arise as a result of meditation, one of them is called radiating goodness, radiate goodness. So Paul Ekman uh, was a famous psychologist and uh, was at a meeting with the Dalai Lama, but uh, Paul admitted later that uh, he had always felt angry, felt aggressive and angry all the time and noticed that in the presence of the Dalai Lama, it wasn't angry anymore. And the, the, it was such a shocking contrast for him that uh, he felt that this was something worthwhile looking into. Like, where did the anger go? Well, of course, the Dalai Lama is known as are a number of, of, of great leaders and meditators that they do have some kind of ability to radiate goodness. You simply feel better in their presence. So Paul began to look into this and found... Uh, another monk that was um, suggested by the Dalai Lama to see in an experimental, sort of quasi-experimental, not laboratory, but in a, like a field study. If you put that monk in the presence of other people, would they in fact start feeling more calmer and more pleasant? And he found to his surprise and delight that they do. So this does suggest that at least in that one particular kind of superpower, it's a superpower. It's like it, we don't see this in movies like the X-Men because what kind of a strange power would that be? <laughs> but it's a pretty good power, right? You have somebody who is simply happy and calm that that seems to infect people in the vicinity in a way that is surprising to them. It's not simply the way they look. It, they could be completely silent, but their presence does something. It can be felt by others and it affects others. So – if you look at the entire range of superpowers, I think that's a pretty good one. I think it's very good. And I'm guessing like my, I guess my, my instinct would say that it would work both ways. So if you're in the presence of somebody who's positive and radiant, radiating goodness on the flip side, if you're with somebody who has got bad intentions or um, is what well, in negativity, does it, does it work both ways? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we live in a dualistic world. We, we know things by contrast. So in the case of Paul Ekman, he knew that something changed because the anger that was usually there went away. And if he didn't have the anger, he may not have noticed anything. So, yes. So I think uh, every superpower has an anti-power. Mm-hmm. And, and if we haven't learned this yet, we just need to go back to our comic books and start reading because that is always the case. You can't have a superhero without having an anti-superhero. What experiments or results have really excited you the most? Have there been any in particular which have really stood out? It could be recently or it could be over the last of 10, 20 years. Have there been like one or two when, I don't know, maybe you weren't expecting the results or you were hoping for something and then it, it really confirmed it? What, what stands out the most for you? Well, I have two ways of responding to that. One is that... Uh, Sometimes there are individual experiments that get really, really good results. It could be quite exciting because you, you think that you're, you finally caught the tail of the dragon. You understand what's going on. But what has impressed me far more is you do an experiment. It works. You do another experiment. Maybe it doesn't work quite as well, but it kind of works. You keep doing it again and again because every time you're doing it, especially – if you get a result that is confirming that some kind of psychic effect is real, it's challenged so strongly by our scientific worldview that it's very difficult to believe. Because I'm not coming from this from a point of view where my life has been saturated with psychic effects. I'm coming at it from the point of view of curiosity. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't have an a priori reason to believe that it must be true. I do have friends who are psychic and this, this stuff is like, this is boring for them, but it's not boring for me because I was trained as a traditional scientist and was taught that this stuff didn't even exist. So I do the experiment many times and then eventually convince myself, I think I'm doing it right. But the only way I know for sure is to get somebody else to do it. So I'm impressed if I can do an experiment and then get my colleagues to do it and they start all trying to repeat it, and they're able to as well. This is one of the underlying strengths of science is that you don't have to rely on one person or one person's belief. You get a lot of people and you develop a consensus about whether or not the thing is true or not. So they give one example. uh, Back in the the mid-90s, I did an experiment that I called presentiment. And this was looking at an unconscious form of precognition. And I'll I'll tell you the story that started this experiment. The idea is that you, uh, uh, the experiment itself is easy. You sit somebody down in front of a computer screen. They're going to look at a series of randomly selected pictures, some of which are calm and some of which are very emotional. And this is known to push your physiology. It'll push your heart rate and your skin conductance, your pupil dilation. It, It has known effects. And so we measure all of those physiology measures and we're interested in that if this notion of precognition is mostly unconscious all of these psychic effects start in the unconscious then maybe we'd be able to detect your response to a future emotional picture before not only before you're aware of it but before the picture actually shows up seconds before and before a calm picture where you'd have no response to it we wouldn't see anything so it's that contrast that we're looking for changes in physiology before the picture is selected. So we started doing experiments like that, and they worked surprisingly well. And our colleagues around the world have replicated now, so it looks like a real phenomenon. And we've done it in animals, and it works in animals. 
We've done it in almost every physiological measure you can imagine. It works. So what started this idea to do this experiment was the following story. At the time, I was working at, the, at a university, and uh, next door to, to where I was was a museum. So one of the people who worked in the museum liked to go hunting. So he described a, a, an instance where he had two pistols that he had that when he, when he would go hunting, and he was in the process of cleaning them. One of the pistols was a six-shot revolver. So this has six bullets in it and a revolving thing, and it's a double-action pistol. So you pull the trigger, the revolver turns, the hammer goes back, and then it hits the bullet. So you can, you can just keep pulling the trigger, and it would fire all six bullets. So for the sake of safety, he would keep the hammer on an empty chamber. He only had five bullets in it. So that if it was jostled or something, it wouldn't accidentally hit the bullet and go off. So he takes the five bullets out. He's cleaning the gun. And now he's putting the bullets back in. He puts in one, two, three, four. And then he's putting the fifth bullet in. And he has a really bad feeling about it. He doesn't have a cognition. It doesn't know why. But he doesn't feel good. So he sets it aside. He doesn't put it in. So puts the, the gun in his bag. And a couple of weeks later, he's on a hunting trip. And he does what people should not do when the guns are around. He and his buddies are drinking <laughs> at, in the evening. Two guys get into an argument. One of them picks up his pistol and points it point blank in the other person's face and starts pulling the trigger. Of course, he's horrified, jumps in between them. And now the gun is right smack in front of his face. And the, uh, the trigger is pulled. The hammer goes back and it goes click onto an empty chamber, which was the chamber that had the fifth bullet into it that he took out. So he realized at that moment that he was either going to be shot dead or he could save himself. Well, go back two weeks before when he took out that bullet, he had this bad feeling about something to do with that bullet. So he jokes about it now saying that uh, everybody has a bullet with their name on it. And he knows where that bullet is for him because it's in the safety deposit box. <laughs> so in thinking about that kind of, of episode, and there are many, many examples like that. This, this one's pretty dramatic and somewhat unusual. But a lot of people have, have instances of driving along somewhere that they drive a thousand times. And they just get a bad feeling about an intersection coming up. So they slow down and somebody goes through the red light. And they would have been hit if they had not slowed down. This has happened to me several times, that exact experience. So you try to simulate that in the laboratory to see if, there, if you can pick up the gut feeling, this physiological effect, and it turns out you can. And you're not putting people in danger. I mean, they have to consent to seeing some pictures which are not very pleasant and, and, and in the experiment. But it turns out that that method actually is a way of simulating what people talk about in the real world. It works. There's so, so many good stories. I'm gonna, uh, straight, as soon as we finish this, I'm going to go back and listen to a lot of these. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the, I guess, societal implications of this knowledge? So if slash when society accepts <clears throat> maybe this new story, this new narrative, um, what do you feel that would mean for society? It would completely destroy it. Okay. And th this is one of the reasons why there is so much resistance I mean, there's scientific resistance, but there's also political resistance. Uh, there's a lot of religious resistance because these phenomena are considered to be demonic in, in some orthodox religions. 
So then you'd say, well, well, why? I mean, this is just like a, it's a property of nature. It's, you know, it's, why is there so much resistance? Well, one good reason is that imagine that suddenly something goes in the water supply and everybody becomes completely telepathic. You know what everyone else is thinking. And now think about the, the role of secrecy and in the way that society works. Everything would break down immediately because if there's no, it's not possible to tell a lie anymore. Politics can't work. The whole justice system would change. Everything would change very dramatically. So that's if it happened overnight. I mean, really, it would destroy everything very quickly. But what if it was rolled out slowly? So we, we kind of make it uh, acceptable to people that, uh, yes, telepathy really exists. And the evidence is quite strong that it does. But we, we make it so that it's not simply a story. It's not entertainment, but it's a real thing. And some people are really good at it. Well, those people, if they are known, will be in danger. Because now you have some people who will know all the secrets, but other people are not so good at it. So they're not going to know the secrets. Well, the people who know the secrets are in danger. This is exactly why within the intelligence agencies, the identity of the people involved are a secret. They can't be known because it would be dangerous for them to be known. It would be the same in this case. So if we imagine that we want civilization to continue, and even if we don't want it to continue in its present form because of known problems, the status quo is very, very strong in keeping it the way it is. Uh, and so that's one good reason why it would be very difficult to, to make these kinds of phenomena suddenly acceptable. It would have to be a different kind of civilization for that to occur. My thought is that it would be a much, much more humane civilization than the one we currently live in. Because a lot of the problems in the world today is because of secrecy. It's because you don't exactly know who to trust or what they're really talking about. And you just don't know. And it's the, not, the ability not of knowing which creates a lot of conflict. And that's just telepathy. You start bringing in the other phenomena. I mean, now think about the possibility that uh, there are a lot of experiments looking at the role of the mind in the physical world, mind-matter interaction. Mm. The evidence is quite good there that that exists as well. But now inflate that. So everybody kind of accepts it and it's a real thing and we get really good at it. That would completely destroy everything, even quicker than just telepathy, because now you start thinking, well, uh, imagine that telepathy, we set it aside. All that we're able to do now is sort of X-Men manipulation of the world stuff. If you don't like somebody and you have a whim that you think, well, you know, I don't, I don't like that person because they cut me off in traffic. Well, that whim gets turned into a, a, as an intention into harming the other person you can see how quickly we would end up destroying each other. Sure. We're, we're basically aggressive primates, and we are very quick to act, usually before we think about it. So if our, if our mental actions were actually manifested quickly, uh, it, it, we're in serious trouble. And this, this by the way, is uh, a favorite storyline in um, uh, Shakespeare's The Tempest, is basically looking at this notion, and the movie Forbidden Planet, there are many stories that look at what would happen if our intentions were manifested quickly. And they're all horrific stories. It's not a good story. 
So th those are two examples of many that I could give where it, it, you can see why uh, these kinds of phenomena, when you start thinking about it, even at a shallow level, they're actually quite frightening. Mm. And, and so that's a pressure, a societal pressure that says maybe we don't want to know about this. It's okay as entertainment. We love it as entertainment, but not as real. And so there are many things over history that we initially thought were demonic and horrific that we finally got a handle on. And this may be in one of those as well, but it will change the way the world works. Do you – I mean I totally, I totally understand if that suddenly happened overnight and we were unprepared, then it would be all, you know, all hell broke loose. Do you yeah. feel that if little baby step, one, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back – I mean you mentioned that it would be you know, a kinder place. Like, do, do you feel that we can ultimately if we if – we, if it's over a long period and we're prepared for it, do you, we, we, we can make it work in, in, a, in, a positive, in, a, in a positive way? Or do, do you think all, all, all the options are maybe, I mean, do you think, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Can, can we make it work? Yeah, I think so. It, this is, there are some positive spins on this as well. <laughs> Good news. <laughs> yeah. One of the examples is that, uh, is the story Childhood's End. Okay. I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who did it. Uh, and then so in that story, the children start being born with strange powers. It's just like some evolutionary step up. And and uh, there are, of course, stories about the indigo children and children being having special abilities now. But if that occurred and you had slow generational changes where the children became much more intuitive and started having like proto psychic abilities. So we do it gradually. At some point, uh Humanity as a whole has the opportunity of at least reaching its adolescence, maybe even becoming mature. And at that point, if it was slow, uh, then everyone else eventually is going to die. So presumably a lot of the aggression and the, the craziness associated with what it means to be human now will fade away because it is much, much more efficient and, and, and personally more efficient as well to be part of a group. And not a group that is, has one dictator at the top who tells everybody what to do, but a group that is truly something like a hive mind. Now, what's interesting is you look at literature and entertainment that has to do with hive mind. And a lot of it was actually pointing back towards the, the West's view of communism. Like movies like The Invasion of the Body Snatchers it was kind of a veiled uh, anti-communist story because the fear in the west of communism was that everybody's exactly the same like individuality goes away and of course in that sense that's probably not such a great idea but a hive mind in the sense of a beehive it is able to do things that a bee cannot do and incredible things that an individual bee can't do the same with the termites and same with any kind of hive mind you work for the collective so in the west especially in the united states we have this notion that we're all independent, rugged cowboys. We don't need anybody else. We don't have to help anybody else. It's all about you. Well, that doesn't work too good. I mean, it works really great if you're a billionaire. It doesn't work so good if you're struggling out somewhere in the middle of nowhere. The notion of self-reliance is good. But in practical terms, if you want a society, people working together, it is much better 
to have them seeing that you are a piece of a whole. You are not the only thing. And this, in, in, in a very simplistic way, is kind of the difference between Democrats and Republicans in the United States. We want people to be self-reliant and strong, but not everybody can do that. And so we're, we accept a certain degree of socialism to help everyone. And you look at, uh, at around the world at places that are the happiest in terms of the various measures. Well, they're always in socialized countries. Scandinavia is used, is used as the model for this. Well, you may end up paying 70% of your income in taxes, but is it worth it for there to be a, a safety net and a social happiness scale and all of that? I think so. If you're a cowboy, maybe you don't. Well, there are people who think, no, I don't want to pay for somebody else's happiness. Well, okay, then we're going to live in a world that's not very happy. So you take Scandinavia as, as a model and you increase that by a factor of 100 where we really have a hive mind working for the goodness of everyone, I think the world becomes more mature. And I think it is at that point that if we want to do things that require the entire world's resources, like go to another planet, then it becomes possible. Then we can study things in a way so that people don't put their careers at risk as well. So that's just my riff on that. And the the other thing is that I think that uh, we spend some money today look, searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. So we're so amazed that we can't find it very well. And that's because they think we're looking in a completely the wrong way. That if you imagine a, a much more mature society that, <clears throat> that has survived their infancy, as we're trying to. <clears throat> so you imagine some kind of sentient creatures that are thousands or millions of years ahead of us, where they've made it somehow and they are a hive mind because the phenomena, we already know the phenomena are real. We know a hive mind is possible to create. We also know that, or at least suspect at this point, that a hive mind with a single intention that is coherent by billions can, can manipulate reality itself. We see it in the laboratory already with one person but we're, we're dealing with extremely small level effects. But large effects may be possible when you have an entire world thinking about something. In which case, how would you go looking for intelligent aliens out there? Well, you're not going to look for it by looking at their radio signals. Radio signals for them would be so ancient that they may not have any means of even creating it anymore. It'd be like, well, you know, it's like looking for aliens by sending up smoke signals. It's ridiculous. <laughs> what you'd want is to have the equivalent of uh, extremely refined clairvoyance to start searching through reality, through searching through the universe mentally, because my, I strongly suspect that that is, that is what we would start seeing in advanced civilizations. So maybe they're simply waiting for us as a society to become evolved enough to be able to see, oh, okay, that planet woke up. But they're absolutely still asleep now. Don't bother them. They're still sleeping. When the planet wakes up, well, then we'll suddenly find that we're in this society of trillions of sentient creatures out there. But they don't wake up sleeping babies. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? It means find, finding something that you're passionate about and doing that, provided that you're not harming anybody else in the process. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have a positive impact on their lives? 
find out what that thing is that you're passionate about that doesn't harm anybody else and then go do it. Dean, thank you so, so much. Where can people find out more about you and your work? What what website or place can we send them? Well, uh, the the institute I work at is the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and that's noetic.org. And my personal website is deanraden.com. Dean, they were some absolutely fascinating stories. Thank you so much for sharing them with all of us today. It's been, yeah, it's been absolutely amazing. Thank you. You're welcome.